The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 37 of The Ascent of Board Games. We're back, and we're happy to be here, even if our topic today is one that doesn't necessarily make us happy. But we'll get on to that in a minute. I don't know what you're talking about. I actually really enjoyed researching this topic. Oh, good. It was fascinating. Yeah, no, it's quite a rabbit hole. This month, it's going to be another one of those wacky, unusual topics rather than a game mechanic that we're specifically talking about. After some recent suboptimal gaming experiences and some chance encounters on the internet, we decided we wanted to do an episode on games you shouldn't play. No, no, Brian. These aren't games you shouldn't play. These are games you can't play. Oh, no, no. You can definitely play some of them. Why did you pause before you said the word play? I I don't think you would enjoy (laughs) some of them. These are not just games that are bad, because we all know there are a million bad games out there. These are games that specifically either you cannot play or cannot win as written, or there are component decisions or rules mistakes or design mistakes or graphic mistakes that just render the games unplayable or pointless or stupid. We've talked to a couple of people about this topic, and one of the responses we got is, oh, you have to include Diplomacy on there. No, no, no. Diplomacy is a good and perfectly serviceable game. I will argue that you maybe shouldn't play Diplomacy with people you know in real life and who know where you live. But I think as a like an internet game or something like that, it's a yeah, I, great game. It's well-designed. It's coherent. The rules make sense. Two people I know played a game. They wouldn't speak to each other for a month. That happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. One of the things that prompted me on this was an internet video on a game that was being designed called Tank Tactics. Tank Turn Tactics. I spent the morning watching the GDQ talk about it. Mike means GDC. There's a link in the show notes which was a really good talk if anybody is interested. Yeah, it's super interesting because basically they did a paper prototype of what this game was going to be. And it was going to be a fairly simple move and shoot game where everybody has one unit on a big square board and everybody gets one action and only one player wins. Mm. But you can give your actions to other players. You also don't have to spend your action. You can just let them compound over Mm -hmm. time. And doing anything requires an action. Yeah, moving, shooting, which is basically all you do. They just had basically the paper and cardboard prototype set up in their boardroom. and People would go in and do their moves or whatever. And there were like factions building up within the first half hour. And it got to the point where there were departments that would refuse to talk to each other. And they kind of needed to do work. (laughs) It it almost took the company apart. And eventually they just, you know, we're not going to make this. It's too dangerous. (laughs) The designer also talked about that... Because the boardroom had glass walls, the people that sat near the boardroom that were not playing the game got drawn into the game as spies. And then (laughs) there were guys, marketing is in there. They're all huddled in the corner. You need to get down here now. There were some people that then became double agent spies and like you would go into the boardroom to make your move and suddenly 20 people were there (laughs) because somebody sent an internal email thread that was like jason's in the boardroom he's doing something are we sure this wasn't a psychology experiment? I mean, it really it could have be been. a game. It really like, could have been. I'll definitely put a link to the video in the show notes. It's no, fascinating. The fascinating. What I found most interesting, this was from the guys that did Fruit Ninja. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. You wouldn't you wouldn't have thought it was up their alley. But, and the thing is, it sounds like it's so simple, but people make things complicated. It's so funny because like when you first started describing it, it felt like they were trying to model the old Atari game combat where mm-hmm. you had the two tanks on mm-hmm. either side of the board. I think they kind of were, right? They were going for a very simplistic game, I think, ultimately. And then they were that like, That turned oh, into EVE Online? Yeah. yeah. And then and people actually, showed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow there's like mining going on. We didn't even have rules for that. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes in the video was that he knew that he had created monsters when the artist that he worked with on fruit ninja who was playing the game 
had a secret plan, which was basically a drawn out detailed list of every action he was going to spend, but also had a double secret plan, which is what he actually wanted to do. So he like left the secret plan out uh-huh. so somebody could find and it. It's <laughs> just like, that's when I knew I had <laughs> done something awful. Now on to real world games, which are just as unplayable for different reasons. 1979, a man who definitely knows games is Richard Berg. He designed a ton of war games. So many war games, talked to so many people, got so much criticism for leaving out details. And, you know, really, this game could do this. He finally got people to let him produce Campaign for North Africa in 1979 SPI. This is huge. It's got a big old map, 1,600 counters, and you may have a dozen units on each side at a time. The thing about the North Africa campaign is that really not a lot of forces fought at a time. And so they would basically the big problem is you've got a, well, desert. So really it's supply that's the big issue with campaign for North Africa. Units just kind of sit there waiting on supply to actually do anything. And so campaign for North Africa is a game about supply. Every unit has a eight and a half by 11 two-page spread that you have to track their ammunition, water, fuel. And, and how many counters did you say there were, Frank? There's 1,600 counters. <laughs> you, you use like a dozen of them at a time. The game suggests playing with five people because, well... Five people on a side. Yeah. There is air support, but you track every pilot and plane separately with fuel, ammo, and... Uh, and so they suggest playing with five people per side a commander-in-chief who makes strategic decisions and to settle intra-team disputes. <laughs> yeah. uh, a logistics commander that deals with all the supplies, a rear area commander that deals with all the trucks that are going to supply people, an air commander that deals with all those pilots and planes, and finally a frontline commander that actually, you know, does the combat and CRT table rolls. With the, the full complement of 10 players, if you're playing a full game, it's 1,200 hours, and... <laughs> It is firmly believed, probably with justification, that no one has ever finished a full game. So I only have one question, Frank. When are we doing this? <laughs> no. It sounds absolutely we need five more people. It sounds so insanely bizarre. Yeah. It's like there's something that's just like, but what if we did? What if we did? <laughs> Sorry, Joe. How much free time do you have? Not no. enough for this game no, at all. No, no, but no. still, I mean it's it sounds Oh my god, it's just it's insane. It's 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 so insane. The people who've played several turns, I think maybe <laughs> the shorter game, have said it's actually really compelling because there's so much detail. No, that's what I'm saying. That's in some ways the detailing the detail you're describing is really compelling, also insane. Like really, really crazy. Your first game you're really just learning what to do. So it's really only in the second <laughs> game that you Yeah, totally. I just did the quick math here. You said twelve hundred hours. So that means if you were playing this forty hours a week as a full time job. It would take you a little over six months to play. Oh my gosh. Maybe if we retire and get really, <laughs> really bored. You know what you could actually do, though? Just do like an actual campaign in North yes, Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that might take I'm not sure how long four years. And yeah, yeah. But there are some extra rules and some infamous rules. For example, the Italian pasta rule. Yay! <laughs> the Italians brought pasta as food, which is true. And that basically they burn an extra water ration. <laughs> Making their pasta. <laughs> because of water to cook the pasta in, which is untrue uh, because they actually use the sauce to yeah. cook the pasta. But there's also rules for during the first year, the British take fuel losses more heavily because uh, they didn't have jerry cans. In the second year, jerry cans were invented, came out. Technically, were stolen from the Germans. And so their fuel evaporation goes down. You track <laughs> fuel evaporation. Oh, you just broke Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike's taking a selfie going, what? <laughs> so Mike is now in my boat firmly of, when do we start? <laughs> I'm like, as a gamer... <laughs> I don't mind realism in my games, but... Do you, Mike? Do but, you? I feel like you're going to say you do. But there's a line. What? What? You're also going to play with maybe 100 counters over the course of the game or more, meaning that you're going to have to photocopy this 11 by 17 double sheet for tracking a lot. 
<laughs> as units, you know, kind of fade out and everything. I really feel like from what you were saying, this is Richard Burry saying, oh, you want detail, motherfuckers? I'm going to give you some goddamn detail oh, totally. and shut your mouth. It is absolutely <laughs> Richard Burr taking the piss. Okay, so here's my question. Has Richard Burr played a full game no. of this? He oh, good. has gone on record saying that... <laughs> They never completed a game. Mm. They did play test it, but yeah, whatever. He didn't quite intend it to be finished, which is, I mean, that's our definition of what we're doing here. I get it, y'all. I get it. It's a commentary on the futility of war in board game form. No, it's just trolling your fan base. Ah. <laughs> that was going to be my second guess. And this was not a cheap game. I mean, we're talking 1600 counters, giant maps. So this was probably, a, you know, 1979. We're talking a... $60 game, I think. Which at the time was ludicrous. Yeah, totally. You know, like a $150 game today. If you actually are interested in, in North Africa, there is a, an excellent game called Africa Core by Avalon Hill, who will be reappearing in this episode. Mm -hmm. Designed by Charles S. Roberts of Charles S. Roberts Award fame. He, he must be good. He had an award name. Pretty much the founder, lead designer of Avalon Hill in the early years called Africa Core. It is one of the very first Avalon Hill basic war games, and it's really good. And it's playable in linear time. <laughs> Two to four hours. And it does feature supply rules. For example, the British have pretty accurate supply, so they're able to continually supply and move. But if your unit doesn't have supply, it just sits there. That's pretty much all of the rules for supply. The German supply is determined by a roll every turn. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, your Cute. unit's not moving. And that's it. But it actually gives you a good feel. You've only got, you know, a dozen or so counters on each side, like a campaign for North Africa. But basically, it's the entire first half of the North African campaign in a tiny amount of time. And it's still playable. It's really well balanced. And uh, that's 1964. Wow, that is pretty early. So, um... I don't know. I had a segue there and it's gone now. So tell us about the next game, Frank. Yeah. And I promise I'll stop talking about really old games. Probably never, but. That's why we hey, brought hey, you on the show, yeah, Frank. Yeah, that's why you're here, Frank. Oh, right. Okay. At least for this episode, our next game is the game of lose. And like our previous entry, it, um, yeah, was pretty much designed as a troll. Specifically, this trolls from 1990 and it, looks like it came out of the 60s 70s i don't know it's all very handmade peter eric hendrickson reynold hendrickson and the name of the company's lost horizons all of their games were at least the first editions were all looked like they were stamped with multicolor stamps oh. on printed paper and then spray mounted with spray mount glued to the boxes and, you know, hand cut things, the boards are chipboard with, again, some kind of colored paper badly attached, hand done art. So the game of lose is a, yeah, Monopoly clone. The big tagline on front of the box tells you that it comes with real money. And yes, yes, it does. It comes with a genuine Nicaraguan 50,000 Cordoba bill, which at the time was worth about 14 cents. <laughs> As well as, you know, a bunch of reproductions of fake money altered with bad jokes. But this game, basically, you move around the board, you buy properties, and uh, you start making money. And then after a few turns, the IRS tax dinosaur kicks in, which is a big rubber dinosaur, which is much bigger than your standard 70s cheap playing pawns. And eventually some events start to put blights, which are screws and rubber bugs, on your properties, represented by... Metal sheet screws and little rubber bugs. <laughs> Did they just have a, a surplus of just random crap? And they're like, let's make a game around this. Oh no, you could you could buy all this stuff at a surplus or something. That is what it feels like. Is they're like, okay, we've got a plastic cockroach, some screws, Nicaraguan fifty thousand oh, dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian, you got a dinosaur? Yeah, exactly. Let's get that in there. It's like a game jam setup uh -huh. where they, here your components go. <laughs> and basically you start paying rent. And eventually, you know, money starts draining out of the game a little bit faster than it comes in. And especially with the IRS tax dinosaur. And at that point, somebody runs out of money and they still get to play. But they're on welfare. So the other players have to pay the bank for them to take their turns. There may or may not have been a political component <laughs> to the design of this game. Yeah, totally. And then, uh, yeah, more of that and more of that. And eventually no one wins. Uh, the game possibly is winnable, but I doubt it. <laughs> huh. 
and basically you kind of like ramp up and you're like halfway there. It's like, wow, I'm accelerating, you know, getting this curve, more money's coming in. And no, it's right wrong. in the face. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Lost Horizon did a few games. Probably their most famous air quotes game is International Insult, which has a basic take that game with a bunch of cards of various insults for nationalities that is rude as hell. Oh. <laughs> kind of have to be with Which gives you an idea where they're going. What the is time. their market? Like, how do they make money? I don't understand. Me! <laughs> I have both games. Oh Frank is single-handedly supporting <laughs> that. Them afloat, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, the game comes with a whole bunch of extra weird bits and pieces. There's an emotional damage table which you're supposed to roll on whenever something bad happens to you that you're supposed to then role play for the rest of the game. <laughs> which we were just talking about is a mechanic that could be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, totally. Well, yeah, you probably shouldn't play it. But you, c- I actually do want to play it again, so there. <laughs> I just love to see the eBay listings for like used copies of this game. Comes complete minus the IRS dinosaur. <laughs> like, <laughs> just how would you even... Oh, God. Comes complete minus the... Nicaraguan. Nicaraguan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we sold that. <laughs> yeah. Comes complete. We're missing one screw. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, there's a lot of times when you talk about games you want to play again, and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to try that. This is not one of those. <laughs> I have no desire to play that. Having looked at the board, which is really hideous. Oh, yeah, it's ugly. These are games I want to subject people to. Right, I don't exactly. want to participate in. <laughs> like the insane clown classy talisman ripoff. I love that game. I absolutely love that game. Frank, do you have maybe something slightly less trolly that we could play instead in its place? Instead of the game of lose, it does have that kind of uh, a roll and move and, and everything. There's a game called CV that plays a little bit like Funny Friends. That's that kind of social, wacky, cute game. CV is by Granny, a Polish company that does very, very light games. It's a simple little Yahtzee game. Kind of a Yahtzee meets Funny Friends. You have a bunch of cards up and you roll dice with symbols and some of the powers you have lets you use the symbols to collect new cards. It's a tableau builder, basically. And it's very cute. You go through life, you know, get new jobs, try to build up in various categories. Grania actually does some really good games and uh, I'm a little unhappy that they're not better known. Well, maybe we we'll can work on it. it. Yeah, totally. We'll give them the Ascent to Board Game Bump. By the Ascent to Board Game Bump, I mean, we're all five going to go out and buy it. Exactly. <laughs> totally. Go out and buy I some Grania games. I thought that only worked on Kickstarters. <laughs> I mean, it primarily works on <laughs> Kickstarters. Let's keep talking about Monopoly clones. That's my request. Yeah, that's really my favorite kind. Yeah, of yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's talk about Global Survival. I think this game is utterly spectacular. <laughs> I mean, Global Survival really sounds like an interesting game where you're fighting to survive in all sorts of weird environments around the globe and you have to deal with challenges like Ebola and bears and Well, floods. it came out in 1992, okay. uh, released by Avalon Hill, designed by Diane Schwartzberg mayer and John Mayer. Ooh, if it's Avalon Hill, like... I'd just like to point out that this was not the Avalon Hill that it gave us Africa Corps, squad leader. This was the Avalon Hill that gave us Look at the Schmuck on the Camel. Well, actually, my question is, if it was John Mayer, are we talking about the singer? Probably. This I was, think as far this as was, I can tell. This is he, when this Ooh. didn't work out, he moved on to <laughs> yeah. a musical career? Okay. Yeah, I think he was done at that point. In Global Survival, it is a Monopoly loop around the board, except that it's actually two loops. You go down one loop, and then you go down the second loop. Joe, why would they need so many spaces on a roll? Because roll-in every board? single country is represented on the board. As a space. What? <laughs> every single country is represented as space. You start with $200 billion and you buy countries. And if other people land on your countries, you get five to tens of millions when they land on your board. So functionally, 0.002% of your total cash. And these represent the population of these countries? Yes. So you're, I'm trying to think of the game fiction for that. <laughs> and the thing is, it's the exact value because when you have these billion dollars, you start with like billion dollar bills mm-hmm. and go down to one dollar bills. Yep. Not not dollar people. Sorry, we are people, we are trading people. people. Yes, exactly. Ooh. That. Okay. Could you have me up until that point, and now is when you're. <laughs> you know what? I'm good. Mm-hmm. So the game is literally everything that's wrong with Monopoly, but if you crank it to like ten, <laughs> it's beautiful. And if you get a set of all the countries in a continent, they're now more powerful. So 
just as in Risk, Australia is the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, there are a bunch of them, and so like the likelihood of, of you getting it in a human lifetime is exceptionally low. What's really great is, when was this game made? 1990s? 92. Oh, 92. So like... A lot of those countries probably don't even exist anymore. Maybe don't exist. And there are some new ones. There yeah. are some new ones that aren't oh, on yeah. there anymore. It's a like, whole thing. Tell me about the expansions to this game, Frank. No. When I was doing a research on the game, my favorite thing is on the Board Game Geek, there's a recent thread, which is, I have a copy without rules. Ooh. And everyone <laughs> says, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you could do whatever you want with this game now. Including you don't have to play the game. <laughs> If, if, if you too would like to congratulate this person, we'll post a link on our. It's so on our good. Discord. Like that thread is amazing. Everyone's like, "Oh, well, that's good." I mean, now you can't play the game. Who is the real winner here? So, so what? What should people play instead, Joe? After much discussion, Frank and I agreed that people should play fast food franchise, which is also at a high level. It's a roll and move Monopoly clone moving around the board. It's actually pretty cool because it has the central area instead of being nothing. It's actually where you build your franchise and connect them together. It has almost like a little bit of an acquire type feel to it, or sort of, yeah, yeah. Except just like you're building like, chains like, to connect yeah, exactly. to other places, yeah. 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 The other thing fast food franchise has is a lot of spaces where you just get stuff from passing. So there's a definite cycle of things you're doing as you move around the board. And you can kind of predict that cycle, prep for it. And there's a lot of things like advertising. So you can take out advertising markers that move people to your yeah. pay spaces. That sounds like an entirely playable game. But then when you go around the board, you have to pay mm-hmm. so much for your stipends for your advertising. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and take this one more step. If you're going to play fast food, franchise might might as well just play food chain magnet nope different games no really yes i don't know i had to do a double take because when you said fast food franchise i went to food chain i did the same thing they were conflated in my brain because of the names i was like that that game is not a roll and move what are you talking about joe and frank yeah i actually when frank and i originally talked about it i had the exact same confusion and yeah fast food franchise is one of those games that i really wish would come back and it's criminal that restoration if they listen to this do it do it The next game we had on the list is one that I almost talked about in our Heartbreakers episode because it is conceptually so fascinating and it's got a lot of super clever ideas. It's just not playable by human beings. And this is Last Frontier, The Artifact, originally done in 2001 by Phil and Matt Eglund, published by uh, Sierra Madre. So this one has kind of an interesting origin. There was a little counters on a map alien ripoff game or aliens called Last Frontier, The Vesuvius Incident. And it was one of those, you know, inexpensive little games, you know, printed on paper and cardstock and available in a baggie. And then someone had the idea of what if we had four people playing this, each with their own map, and they couldn't see each other's map, and they each had different objectives that they wanted to do. And so they put together Last Frontier, The Artifact, which is basically four copies of that game, with some additional rules and stuff going on. With the big problem being the person who had that idea was Phil Eklund. Right, exactly. <laughs> who is an insane genius. I mean, say no more. Dumb. Right, exactly. But also, is this just like a precursor to the fantasy flight model of, you're going to need to buy two or three of this game in order to play it? It wasn't excessively expensive. Like I say, the original game was fairly cheap. The and it is, came with the four copies of the yeah. game. Yeah, like, no, you literally get, You four. get everything in one bag. Not even a box. They gave you four games for one. That sounds great. But the problem is that you've got four people with their individual maps. And you have someone who's basically being a game master. And the different factions are there's like the mad scientist who runs the space station, who has possession of the artifact and is trying to sell it to the space pirates who are there. And maybe they want to buy it. Maybe they just want to steal it. There is an alien of some kind, which may be a rogue AI on the ship or some kind of actual violent murderous alien, or maybe the artifact itself is sentient. And then you have the phone company, which might be actually bounty hunters or government agents or just actually the phone company who's there to fix the phones. They have no idea what the hell's going on. Everybody's got their own little map. And basically every turn, somebody makes a move and the GM has to basically see what they move, check or remember what's on everybody else's map, tell them what they see. And then if they move into a place where they can be seen by someone else, go update that person's map. It's just extraordinarily difficult to manage. We tried to play it once and we got through a few turns, but it's just, it's nuts try and set it up. There was a lovely reprint done in 2017 or 18, I think, 
Yeah. Um, a standalone game, really beautiful, nice quality components. Hardboard. Uh, updated yeah. rules. Yeah, really great job. It's just still, it needs an app or some kind of omniscient gem or something to run. Yeah. I've yet to try to run it. You know, I've got a lot of experience running LARPs. I think Sandy and I could do it, but that's two gems. Mm-hmm. And people that really know how to run this kind of thing. Yeah. And even then, it's going to be rough. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating because it sounds like almost like it needs that computer component to function. But at mm-hmm. that point, it's you're a making game, a computer yeah. game. Yeah. Like It sounds like it needs more than just app integration. It mm-hmm. sounds like it just needs to be a computer. And game. I would totally play that computer game because the sort of quadruple blind thing where everybody has their own objectives is fascinating. The good news is that Matt Eklund has just done Stationfall, the Kickstarter finished a month or two back, which really looks like the spiritual successor to this game, but it's designed in such a way that you don't need a GM and it's actually playable. That's good. There's like a dozen characters on the map and anyone can move any of the characters, but one of them is actually you. So there's... Yeah, there's a lot of kind of bluffing things going on. I forget what you want. What was that one where you were stealing gems from uh, the... the Oh, Suspicion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Suspicion. There's a few games that do that kind of thing. But yeah, it looks like it's really kind of the closest thing we can get to an artifact game that is actually usable. I definitely back the Kickstarter. Because and frankly, this is a LARP. Find, you know, someone that does interactive fiction LARPs and and, and play them. Because it... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this exemplifies what we were saying at the top of the episode, where it's like, these are not necessarily bad games. They are conceptually fascinating. They are interesting themes. They just don't work. Except for Global Survival. Yeah, really, I mean, Global just, Survival, yeah, that's, which that's, that that's not a even game about idea. trading people and stop that. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of these are good ideas, badly executed. The next one, I think, is a perfectly good game that just suffers from some component issues. Right. Our next game is all about uh, production failures and why it's important to consider production. So our next game is Luniana Full Moon, made in 2009, published by Gen X Games and designed by... Why would you guys do this to me? <laughs> you volunteered. Servando Carbala? Sure. Sounds right. And Luniana is um, a hidden uh, trader game, right? One or more of you is a werewolf, and the rest of you are humans, and you're stuck in a forest. The humans are trying to discover somewhere on the board the exit from the forest, and the werewolves are trying to turn at least one member of the group and leave no human survivors to tell about it. It's a good game, right? But the components are really cheap, feeling so the game is made of a bunch of hex components and all the hex components are thin paper going on a kind of a larger hex board and there are several chits that are like functionally half a thumbnail size right a quarter of an inch yeah so basically if you've ever used a hole punch yes uh, it's it's about the size of what would come out of it. You know what it actually reminds me of? Like, uh, if you've ever played games that have dials that you assemble, right? That you Yeah, the bits you punch it, out yeah, of the, the middle throw away. Middle. That's exactly, exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they're also made of very thin cardboard. They're two-sided, so their sidedness oh, matters. No. <laughs> yeah. And they're so small and so thin that if you were to do something during the game, like, say, breathe. Like a human. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> things will go all over the place. And it's really a shame because we played this once and I remember quite liking it. It's not an earth-shaking game, but it's a good solid game. But it's just, I'm over 50 now. I can't see that shit. So I'm just going to add to that story a little bit. They played this game once without me. Yep. It's a game about (laughs) werewolves. You know what I want to play? A fucking game about werewolves. They played it without me. And then never again. And every time we sit down, I'm like, guys, we could play Loon Liana. And everybody kind of looks at each other and says, mm, no. We only made it through three or four turns before we all threw our dice. Explain the throwing dice thing yeah, for listeners because, that are Because we do have bad games. And because, you know, I've got a history of picking up games that no one's ever heard of. There's no reviews. You know, There's possibly for a good reason. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is we have a rule where... Basically, someone just picks up a die or something, skiff it, and drops it on the table, obviously. When a majority of people have basically cast their die, thrown their die, we just put the game back in the box. Often, this is not a nice procedure. We also have a second thing. Make it fit in the box. No, it's called sweeping. We just put the box <laughs> under the table and 
in. We will goes never in speak and... of this again. Yeah, totally. I love that you've ritualized this. It's so great. It actually, that kind of happened by accident. We were doing a bad movie party where the rules, because we were stupid and crazy and young, were an all-night movie horror party. Yeah. Yes. Except that it couldn't be a movie you'd actually seen. <laughs> oh, no. And this movie called Haunts whose best scene involved goat fondling. People were just kind of, it was really boring. <laughs> boring goat fondling is the worst yeah. kind of goat fondling. It's amazing how that happened. And so we had a bunch of foam D&D dice because I would. And so people just started throwing them at the TV to really boredom. It's like, wait, you know, we could stop this movie. <laughs> and so we'd start a movie and you'd see someone like pick up and see the title of the movie and reach for a foam die. <laughs> Just to kind of bring it back to Luliana here, I think there are a lot of things this game does right. It's got some excellent graphic design. Like the artist, they are clearly proud of graphic design. Yes, but not production design. Some of the lovely illustrations are in the rule book printed over the text dark enough that the text becomes unreadable, like in the list of equipment, which is yeah. kind of things you need to know. I feel like a second edition of this game could be decent. But this is just not. Well, it's interesting, right? Because like Jason and I were talking before we started recording, like, why would they choose to make the pieces so small? My best guess is that they were trying to design it so that it fits on a table. Because clearly this game came out in an age when that was still a thing you had to consider. <laughs> Thanks, Kickstarter. Or European cafe tables or right. something. Yeah, like, I, uh, I mean, totally. it definitely is big enough that you you break it out at like a coffee shop and play it. <laughs> you have these little like three by five index cards, which are your character cards. There's plenty of space on there to put regular size tokens. Yeah, sure are. The hexes are like the size of a hex map that you would play D&D on. They're like two an inch and a half. Or, yeah, yeah, they're like two inches. Maybe it, two. There's no reason, because I think the biggest the map could be is a 5x5 five five hex grid. Yeah. Why are they so small? I imagine it was, because uh, I think this was, if not their first game, one of their first games that it made. It was very a early, saving yeah. thing. Yeah. I would like to see another version of this just so Mike can get to play it. Yeah, I'd love to play a game about werewolves. Frank, we should talk later. Sure. I'm sure you've got some. Do we have, hey, there's a game called Werewolf. An alternative? This game was kind of right at the start of the the hidden player phenomenon that happened in board games for a while, right? So, like, the, the big king of that for a very long time was Battlestar Galactica, which I would recommend, except that you literally cannot buy it. I mean, Unfathomable is about to come out, which is functionally a I think it'll be out by the Arc time this episode airs. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so Unfathomable, like, it looks like functionally a Battlestar Galactica clone in the Arkham universe, so therefore, that game will be great. Yeah. Because um, Battlestar Galactica is great. There's a game called Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space. It's Italian. It's kind of a, yeah, there's an alien one no, person no, 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 Yes, no, I know. I, I hated that game. Or maybe you shouldn't get that. <laughs> it's a basic hidden movement. One person yeah, but moves, we, the other I remember we people. played that once and it was almost unplayable. It was just, uh, I don't remember what was wrong with it specifically, but. It wasn't unplayable enough to make this list, but it could have. Cause no, it wasn't. It's not unplayable. It's really simple and kind of brain dead. Well, anyway, I would not recommend that as an alternative. Okay. So speaking of games that just don't work. Yeah. So our next game on the list is Coaster Park, which came out in 2017 and was designed by Scott Alms and published by Pandasaurus Games, which... They've got Scott Holmes did the tiny epic games, you yeah. know, and I love most of those. Everybody and has to start somewhere. Did Dino Park, and mm -hmm. you know they've done. Yeah, I totally. I Coaster Park is a good game in theory. <laughs> if no. it works, it is, no. it is a good concept for a game. So, is what you're saying? <laughs> no. In this game, you're basically bidding on roller coaster track, but what's different about it is the game comes with actual 3D roller coaster track awesome. and a crane for some reason a crane that is only used as a first person indicator <laughs> and it's like a foot tall it's kind of yeah real weird real weird compensating so you are bidding on these tracks the real meat of the game though is you then take what you've got and you build a roller coaster that you then put your marble on and you get i think three tries to get your marble across as many track pieces as you can, which is functionally impossible. <laughs> Assuming you want a number higher than two. 
Right. Like, I think you multiply however many tracks you get across. There are stars on each piece of track. You get right. stars for each piece of track you cross. Yay. Then that's the game. Now, the game is mostly chasing the marble that has fallen off the table <laughs> because it goes off the tracks immediately. Yeah. Yeah. The pieces don't, like, you have to insert them into each other. And it's not even done in a great way because the cardboard doesn't line up just right. So it's every track is either slightly to the left or right of the previous track, which is not how that works. Oh, hold up. These track pieces are composed of cardboard. Oh, yeah. yes. Easily dented, bent, yep. damaged cardboard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, and that only stabilized in space from the bottom. So the tops are kind of allowed to flow. Oh, my yep. gosh. Wow. Yeah, like, why are they not rigid plastic? That, that's literally that no is sense. insane. Oh, there's a loop. There's a loop. <laughs> There's also a jump <laughs> where you can make your oh your, your marble literally jump over a hole. I think the loop and the jump fit in the campaign for North Africa category is never successfully completed. <laughs> yes. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, I will say I was watching, uh, I think it was a Tom Bassel review, and he was talking about how uh, some of the pieces, the designers said won't be in second printing specifically the, the loop <laughs> yeah because it's um not possible the game itself is not good <laughs> basically you have the worst auction system ever i mean period so basically you pick a piece you say i want to bid six thousand dollars of which you have almost no money and you never get more money in the game. right that was the other thing is the money you get it set up is all the money you have. Well, yeah, totally. Oh, we'll pay 6000 for that piece. And then you go around the table. And if anyone thinks that your bid is valid, they can go, yeah, I'll pay 6000 for that piece. Oh, so you're setting the price for someone else to buy it? Yes. No, that's So insane. you pick the piece and you're almost work. guaranteed not to get it. You absolutely need starting pieces to start a track. And you have literally no control of what you get. So this kind of dodgy physics experiment that doesn't work is compounded by a game where you can't get pieces that you could actually design to fit together. That sounds terrible. Our experience with this game was going, wow, this game is not very good. And okay, we finished and can't get anywhere on the pieces that we did actually build. Can you actually get the pieces? And we spent, you know, maybe a solid hour playing with the pieces to see how far we know. We could not build valid tracks. Finally, we just kind of swept the game back in the box. <laughs> and never spoke of it again. No, there it when someone came, day. ooh, Coaster Park, that just came out, is it any good? No, 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 no. I'll buy it from you. And yes. I was there like, no, no, I, I, I can't. <laughs> Here. Please, please take it out of my house. <laughs> oh, man. It was a con we were doing uh -huh. this. And yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds like you conned them pretty good. No, I just gave it to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. gave them that game. Oh, right, I got rid of it. Net, net win. So as I was looking at this game, it reminds me that there is a project that I do every year with my students in our STEM lab in which I give them a marble, toilet paper tubes, and a paper plate. And I challenge my kindergarten through fifth graders to build a roller coaster out of those things. And you know what? It works better than this game. <laughs> so just do that. It's yep. functionally the same thing. And then, of course, you've got a lot of proper dexterity games like Caramonde, Pitch Car. Yeah. There are a lot of good ones out there if you mm. like that kind of thing. That work. This is not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what I mean by good ones. So the game I was thinking about is actually Steam Park. That is a cute little theme park planning game. You get these little tiles. You have these little stand-up cardboard theme park rides. Mm -hmm. And people, and you mostly have to arrange them. It's a simple arrangement kind of tile laying game for points mm -hmm. with a nice production. You know, cute little game. Great art. Oh, nice. That's charming. Oh, I've seen that game. I yeah. haven't played it, but I've seen it. And it's cute. It's light. It's about as light as this game. But it's actually playable. Kind yeah, I like the art. Fun. Mm -hmm. And yeah. When did Steam Park come out? Was that also 2017? 2013. Okay. Because so I feel like there are a bunch of games about theme parks because I'm thinking oh, of yeah, one that Jason, I think you unfair, own. Oh, which yeah. the only thing I like about Unfair is that all the cards have little panoramas, panoramas on yeah. it. And mm -hmm. I love any game that includes panoramas. And you can mix your themes together. You can have a zombie pirate mm -hmm. adventure. And they work. Yeah. I love it. That's all I remember liking about it. <laughs> um, yeah.
but yeah, that's Coaster Park. It's, again, an interesting idea in theory. Like, I could see a dexterity game in which your objective is to build a roller coaster and get a marble across it. Oh, yeah. Not made out Not of Not with those cardboard. components. Nope. Every bit of what you described in that is just wrongheaded. Like, every single bit. Like... I just can't get over it. it was made of cardboard. That part alone, like cardboard is like the worst medium to do that in. Yeah, it is interesting to watch because the Tom Bassel review shows him like trying several times at demoing the marble rolling across and it falls off on the second one and every single time. And it's like you can see where it's hitting the the, the seam. The, the, the seam, seam on the bottom, yeah. And just goes flying. And it's like as he's doing it, he's like, You get three chances. He takes like eight. We're not coming at Tom Vassell. I'm just saying it's it's pretty clear from the video that it's not a... It's a great demonstration of just how non-functional <laughs> the game is. Yeah. This is a very effective demo then. Well, let's go back to horror then. Oh, God, this is a horrible game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is true. But uh, again, a really cool premise. 2018's Come Award from Everything Epic, designed by Danny Lott. The premise is really promising. You, you all start as people waking up in an abandoned hospital. You don't remember anything about who you are or why you're there. And you play a character that has some level of neuroses and other players have quirks, right? So your characters have a health stat, which controls your strength and dexterity values. You have a terror level that determines what your focus is. And you're basically breaking this game into two separate phases. You've got your prologue phase and the phenomenon phase. The prologue phase, you're basically exploring the hospital. And this is one of the things I actually liked about the art design. The map is like a blueprint of the hospital. And as you explore the rooms, you're placing tiles that will fill in what that actual room is. I think look like Polaroids or something. Yeah. 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 The art art looks really good. And like it's functionally betrayal, right? Like the mechanically intended to be betrayal, which is like, hey, the prologue where you wander around. And then the phenomenon where the bad thing is revealed and now the game starts. Functionally, Betrayal has a very similar feel to it. That is, I think, the elevator pitch for this game is like, what if Betrayal, but darker, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a hospital? I mean, I yeah. that pitch meeting, I, I'm in. It makes right. sense. I love it. I get where it's coming from. I get where it's trying to stand. I can see the great game from that pitch, mm-hmm. right? Elevator pitch. <clears throat> Good joke. We'll be talking about that in a second. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, just like in Betrayal, your characters are wandering around rooms, exploring the hospital, trying to find items, clothing, uh, weapons, items like food, things like that, basically preparing for the phenomenon phase. At the beginning of the setup, you're shuffling in a set of clue cards. When the third clue is discovered, that determines which phenomenon you get which haunt functionally you get if you're familiar with betrayal. And then it you open up a box and it tells you, here's your new rules and here's who you are and here's what's going on. And here are new tokens and <laughs> here's a bunch of mechanics that like now happen in this game. And I don't hate that because no, no. Oh, what that's if, nice. and I want y'all to just close your eyes and imagine for a moment. What if betrayal had a setup where when you get to the haunt, you just pull out a box and everything you need for that haunt is right there. Yeah, no, that design is That beautiful. sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the challenge is like Betrayal. I don't know how many scenarios it has, but well, I think... Well, there's 50 in the base game. Yeah, so this game had like 12, <laughs> something, 13, fine. something like sure. that. Sure, I mean, that, sure. that's That fine. is not the problem. Yeah, no, that is not the problem. <laughs> the problem, well, that's manifold. <laughs> everything else, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... <laughs> You should describe our first experience with the game. I, I think I've blocked most of it out. Uh, I think, so <laughs> when we actually got the haunt, I believe we got a combination of letters that was impossible because the clues are like A, B, C, D, and then the order they were revealed in determines which of the phenomenons you So we get. got that there was a bomb, or we all had bombs. I think we all had bombs in our necks or Yeah, something? it was like... Uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. We, all had, we, we discovered we all had collars around our necks that were secretly bombs, which is fine, whatever. And they're like, cool, get the diamond tokens out and use them to track the code to unlock the oh, collars. Right. And we said... Yes. Wait, what tokens? And we looked around. We couldn't find the diamond tokens. We looked around some more. Couldn't find the diamond tokens. Looked on Board Game we Geek. We looked on Board Game Geek. They're like, oh yeah, we didn't include diamond tokens. Just use your imagination. And we were like, wait, what? <laughs> and that is not the only thing, because several of the rooms allow you to teleport using a portal, of which they included one portal token. <laughs> My least favorite thing about this game is that when we went to the geek, because there were a couple other things where rules were unclear and it wasn't entirely, you know, which happens to almost any board like, game in that existence. That happens in Betrayal. It happens yeah, all it the time. 
And basically, there were a couple threads, which I don't think are on the Geek anymore, I haven't been able to find them, in which the designers of the game, their response to these rules questions were, yeah, we left that deliberately ambiguous so players can play the way they want to oh. play. Oh, no, I think I've, I have the thing that you oh, want. Oh, you I found was, it? Okay. Well, I don't know if it's exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about, but... I quote. <laughs> yeah, no, I do because I, mean, I, I okay, copied for, this one down. For viewers at home, Jason has just pulled out a third piece of paper <laughs> with nothing but a single paragraph. Exhibit A. <laughs> I was reading through all the forum posts on it because like, I was trying to remember what our problems were with it, and I kept finding new stuff. I'm like, oh, 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 no. So this is from, the, I believe, the 1.5 version of the rule book. The Platinum Rule of Come Award. This is called Denying All Responsibility. This game was lovingly designed to be, at its core, an experience. The rules are simply a framework to support your decisions and interactions within the narrative. If during a phenomenon or another part of the game while you're playing, something seems unclear, broken, or doesn't make sense, please make a choice in the moment to move forward with the game, choosing the best path as the people at the table see fit. Wiping our hands entirely of <laughs> any, any We don't got to write no rules. That's, it's not even their golden rule. It's their platinum rule. It's one above gold. You know, I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had realized that this was from Everything Epic. Yeah. Because I've since bought another game from Everything Epic. And if I had remembered my first experience, I maybe yeah. wouldn't have. They might nice bags. They have really nice bags, and their games are generally beautiful and full of love. Like, I have their Big Trouble in Little China game, which is gorgeous. Oh, yeah, wait. That's actually decent. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it's, that got some, it's got some rules holes, but I think <laughs> it's got it's some weird. balance issues. But it's it's not unplayable on no, the that's award. True. That's true. I continue. <laughs> oh, wait. Wait, there's more. There, there's more. As I kept reading it, and to their credit, Danny Lott, the guy who actually made the game, is fairly, well, at least in 2019, was fairly responsive inside the Board Game Geek forums, answering people's questions, clarifying some things, and even, like, kind of poking fun at himself. He has his own blog where he, he, was, he said he was going to go through every single one of the scenarios and explain his thought process, potential fixes to it, and he made it through two before he gave up. <laughs> My favorite part, he actually has a section called, he named this himself, this is the worst game I've ever played, and here's why. <laughs> so, like, on some level, he's acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. And, like, I appreciate that he went through the effort and the exercise to try and correct it. Because, like, if you read it, it's like, here's what I was going for. Here's why I don't think it works. Here's how you can correct it. And he even lists, like, this is my eighth favorite scenario mm-hmm. in, this, in the core set. Yeah. He only did two of them. <laughs> so, it's funny that you mentioned the core set. Because this was a Kickstarter. Oh, of course it was. It had expansions? It had one expansion. It had one expansion. But that meant that if all you own is the core set, there is potential that you could pull the clues in such an order that you just don't have that haunt. Yes. Yeah. And so the rules say, if you get something that you don't own, just pick one. It doesn't really matter. Just make up your own story. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because, honestly, the first printing of Betrayal was riddled with errors. But there was a lot of goodwill built up there because, yeah, you know, that's wrong. Here's how we fix it, that kind of thing. Honestly, I think if they had been more active with this in the first place rather than just saying, yeah, do what feels right for you, I think I would not be as bitter about this game as I Yeah, but one of those rules that they said, oh, yeah, just do whatever, was the elevator. There are two floors to this, like, hospital and question of, you know, if you move a space out or can stay in or whether your move goes to the, you know, how the elevator actually works. Right. Because you have to roll to move up the elevator. Yep. That was where you got the answer of, yeah, just, you know, do whatever. They did finally <laughs> address that in the 1.5 rule book. Yay. Yeah. Too little, too late. But like going through like the forum post is hilarious. You get questions like, I quote, when attacking monsters, do they defend that's not covered in the rule book. <laughs> he had to answer that. The game designer had to answer that in a forum question. Yeah. Like, not to completely dump on the game. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting that I do wish a couple more roll for success games would do is that when you roll a D6, five and sixes are success. That's pretty standard. Ones and twos are failures. But when you roll a four, yep. you re-roll the four and one other die. Yeah, and you okay. keep going until you have no more force. I'm like, okay, that that's exploding force is a lot. Like, okay, I yeah. Mean, there were some bits like that's a clever bit. Like, I thought the neuroses was kind of cute because it's like, hey, 
here's your special ability that's based on a character power that's unique to you. The quirks were kind of fun. They're like things you're watching other players for. And every time you see them do this behavior, you get to put a token on it. And if you get five, you get a special ability. They'd be like, you know, if someone touches their face, you're like, and like, you can't tell other people what you're watching for. So like, you're just sitting there and someone puts a thing on you're like, what, what, what just happened? Why, why are you doing that? Like, <laughs> what, what did I do that, that prompted that? Like, those are cute, but like, ah, there's just so many like. It's ah. this far away from being a good yep. game. But like, yep. it's just like two steps from being a good game. And, and two miles. <laughs> well, I mean, it's two steps from being a good game. And then the company supporting it made it further and further every sentence that they said. Yeah. Right? Like, it started as really close to work. Like, if they would have been like, hey, Hey, here's like an update of the rules. We're really sorry. Let's clarify all this stuff. We've compiled all the complaints and here's an updated rule book. And here's some fixes to some of the scenarios that literally don't work. I think it would have been fine. But then they just said, eh, fuck it. And like, yeah. in some ways, like it moved it away that's the from, problem. that's the problem, right? No, our game is fine. You're playing it wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, at no point did they say their game is fine. Mm. Yeah, that's it, true. It, it was so weird because like on some level, there was an acknowledgement. Yeah, there's some problems here. Uh, here's some corrections. And then at a certain point, there's like, mm, they just kind of slide no, away and never come back. <laughs> yeah, basically. So what should we play instead of Comb Award? I mean, we've mentioned a number of times Betrayal at House of the Hill. Like, that's, or that's, Betrayal at Scooby-Doo Land. Or oh, yeah. Betrayal honestly, Baldur's Betrayal State. Legacy is probably the best betrayal choice. Betrayal Legacy. Yeah, sure. get Just that. go play Betrayal. It is like this, but good. I do wonder, though, if pitching a game of it's Betrayal, but is just a path for failure. I don't think so. Because, like... Yeah. I wonder how much of a game like Home Award is like, hey, what if we take the serious or the silliness out of Betrayal? Because like mm-hmm. nope. when I sit down to play Betrayal, I like that it's just kind of stupid. <laughs> I disagree. I think you could very easily make a game that was good, that was like Betrayal, but in space or like Betrayal, but in a insane mm-hmm. you know sanatorium. Mm-hmm. I think you can easily make those games, right? The problem is, and I think honestly, it very much shows in Home Award that making a game like Betrayal, because of the amount of rules you have to create, is actually really hard, Mm. right? And so I think the reason that Betrayal has succeeded and a lot of other games fail that are like it is because the amount of detail it takes, even Betrayal failed the first Mm -hmm. time to really do it, Mm -hmm. right? And it's really on their like fourth printing, they really got to the point where they had a totally solid game. And the, the amount of things you have to kind of pull together to make it effective. Yeah. It takes it's, a it's solid hard. developer to pull it. Yeah. yeah. With yeah. game design, as with so many other things, the idea is the easy part. Yeah. It's the all details that make it work. And Mike, if you take out like X, but Y, that's like 90% of the games that are published today. Yeah, you're not wrong. We did have a couple honorable mentions in here. You would talk about Terra. Oh, Terra. Terra is a case where I think that semi-cooperative games don't work. Mm-hmm. And really, I've yet to see one that really, really, you know, said, oh, that's awesome. You know, there's Dead of Winter that almost is there, but it kind of, it's actually the to the detriment of the game. Terra is strictly a game that's semi-cooperative. And basically you have problems, which are 10 to 16, and you have solutions, which are one to six. You draw a couple cards. If you draw a problem, you plop it down on the table. If you draw a solution, you can keep it in your hand. And uh, basically you can start playing cards on the problems if you want. If you do that, then you get to cash sets of cards and score them later. The person who finishes a solution by playing, you know, a number that the goes last over card, it, yeah. the last card will get points. So this is actually two big, weird, semi-cooperative problems. First of all, you're setting people up for who actually gets the points for solving the mm-hmm. problem. And you're also basically encouraged to take cards out of the game and keep them because if you don't solve all the problems, everybody loses. And in fact, pretty much if you're playing with any gamer everybody loses and really bruno's kind of said yeah that's kind of the point the later japanese version does have a fully cooperative variant it's considered easier but it really part of the game was yeah we're all gonna have to cooperate or we're screwed yeah and that's which is actually the highly relevant with problems like say global climate change yeah totally. you know well it's not helping me to solve this problem but yeah the game quickly devolves into 
well, he's keeping cards, so I should keep cards to win. <laughs> oh, my God. And no, that's exactly no, no. what happens in Terra. It sounds like a game that is maximizing on the win better mechanic that is almost never fun. Yeah, I know. You're describing Terra, and I'm thinking, maybe I need to get that for my fifth graders to play, because <laughs> they need some hard lessons on cooperation <laughs> sometimes. Oh, yeah. I know plenty of adults that need those same hard lessons. Like, like. Again, it's a terrible game. Good lesson to learn. But yeah, it's an educational, I mean, it's really an educational kind of thing. Yeah. I also wanted to mention The Shining Escape from the Overlook Hotel, which is sort of a cooperative paragraph puzzle solving game. This is from OP, yeah, OP Games, who have historically done some good games along these lines. This is not one. I was playing with a world-class puzzler. Friend of the show, Sean, has been on several winning MIT Mystery Hunt teams. You know, he's a very strong puzzle player. And there was a puzzle in here that we got, and we all looked at it, and we tried to figure it out, and we couldn't. And we looked at the hints, and we still couldn't get it. And we read through all of the hints that told us the solution. And we still could not figure out how you got there. Yeah, Yeah. there's the same people, same designers and everything make a Scooby-Doo mystery game. That's actually quite nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's totally good. good. This one just, there are some really interesting ideas in the puzzle, but there were just several things that did not work. And this is not to be confused with the Shining game that came out that is the Hidden Traitor well, it's a co-op where one person can go bad, but they only go bad temporarily. Right. Yeah. That was by uh, Prospero Hall and Robinsburger. I was like, it's only somebody. Yeah. Oh, Prospero right. <laughs> That's the one that has the carpet pattern on it. It is, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yep. And that's a perfectly good game. And then the last one I wanted to mention, just because it's kind of hilarious. This is Game Vault's World of Warcraft edition. So Game Vault is apparently a tabletop gaming platform, they call it. Basically, it looks like it's an abstract strategy game that's tremendously overproduced. You know, there's like six inch tall uh, sculpted miniatures all from World of Warcraft. And I honestly can't decide if this Kickstarter was a troll, a money laundering scheme, or just the worst idea ever. The board is like four inches tall because that way they can charge money for it. And some game landing spaces are raised, in, and I'm quoting from the Kickstarter page here, uh, game landing spaces are raised in some areas as high as eight inches, creating a level of distraction never before seen in tabletop gaming. These elements can be placed strategically or removed depending on player preferences, creating visual obstructions, ultimately obscuring the line of sight of all game pieces. Wait. Yes, this is a feature, what? Mike. <laughs> this is a feature. What if our game wasn't visible? What if nobody could see it? What if it were invisible? <gasps> well, we'll get to the Guys, best I, part. Yeah. <laughs> I got an idea for a Kickstarter. Let's make an invisible game. Uh, Done. They did that. Yeah. Aww. Game Vault's Onyx Edition includes all the pieces of Game Vault's World of Warcraft Core Edition, plus 20 additional exclusive pieces, blah, 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 blah. These exclusives are painted in a rich and detailed black tones. In addition to being visually stunning, these deep black tones raise the complexity of the game. When there is no differentiation between the pieces and the playing surface, the game difficulty is amplified significantly. It's like, was this run through Google Translate somewhere? Like, this doesn't sound like human speech. Okay, so I'm going to point out, there is, on the Dragon's Tome, one of my Mm -hmm. favorite videos there was the How to Play Jenga. (laughs) Yes. Which he spun as a war game where all pieces, including the map and all of your figures, were all Jenga pieces. Mm -hmm. That's what I just heard in that exactly. What if... Every piece looked the same. Then it would be even more no, no, Mike. Mike, detailed. Mike, Mike. This tabletop game will be built to the highest standards and level of detail. Rather than mold a game to be cost-effective and tooling efficient, our designers have done the opposite. Oh, my God. <laughs> They've challenged the factory to craft something truly beautiful for fans. It's so black. It's black so is the worst <laughs> color. To- How much blacker could a board game be, Frank? None. The answer is none. Is it, none more black. Is it Vanta Black? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the black is black. But, like, you guys are painters. You know black is the worst color for pulling detail out of anything. Like, it obscures all the details. It's, like, the worst thing you can do. Yeah, and, like, their leading paragraph is talking about it's built from a mind-boggling 600-plus parts with its unique strategy game featuring over 88 million possible moves. If that's your lead, if that's your opening sentence, you don't have a game. The Kickstarter did not complete. I saw that. Uh, that restored a little bit of my faith in humanity. 69 people backed it. Yep. She doesn't Which, like... Uh, yeah, no, they clearly I, expected I hundreds even. of people to back it, right? Because they had a Guess half a million dollar goal. I so I don't think. I mean, they, no. all I heard there is all of your pieces will come prime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, 
I'm just amazed that they got Blizzard to sign up for this. Did they get Blizzard to sign off on it? Says they did it in collaboration with Blizzard. It's branded World of Warcraft. Sure. Of course, Blizzard is also (laughs) not in the best situation. Also, bad timing for them. (laughs) Also, yes. Blizzard standpoint, (laughs) for sure. Yes. This hit right in the middle of Blizzard 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 being canceled. Yes, Joe. The real problem with this Kickstarter is Blizzard's PR problems. No, no, I mean, but I think it added to the way that this Kickstarter did not make. Yeah. Oh, but speaking of the invisible board game, there was... Um, the Emperor's The Emperor's Clothes. Clothes. I mean, y'all heard about the art, the invisible art piece that sold, and then another artist tried to sue the original artist <laughs> for, <laughs> for creating the same invisible art that he created? What I really want is for somebody to sell an NFT of that invisible oh, art. Oh, my God. <laughs> But yeah, the Emperor's New Clothes board game was basically just a bunch of blank pieces. Is that yep, totally. Or was blank, going to be. Blank cards, really. blank box, yeah, blank exactly. Oh, sure. So it's just a, a playtest edition. It's really more of an experience. So when you draw a card, mm-hmm. you just play what you think works for your group in the moment. Hold on. <laughs> I, got this. I got this. This game was lovingly designed to be at its core an experience. <laughs> So those are some games that we don't think you should play. We'll include links to all of them. So if you're really masochistic or want to prove us wrong. Or as Jason said earlier, really want to subject somebody to them. <laughs> exactly. We are looking for five players for the campaign of North Africa. <laughs> yeah. So please volunteer. And uh, we're looking need to- for suggestions for new game topics. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, we have <laughs> updated the upcoming episodes poll with a, a lot of new options there. So please jump over to the centerboardgames.com and vote on that. If there are some of these games that you're like, no, wait, that's actually good. A, you're wrong. B, would like to hear about it. And yeah, if you have some other terrible games that you think we should unrecommend to our listeners, let us know. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Everybody stay safe out there and leave us an iTunes review. And we will talk to you again next month. Thanks, everybody. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. <laughs>